Hello and welcome to Future SciChat. Every week on Future Chat, we sit down to talk about science and technology with a discussion centered on a new and exciting topic in one of those two fields. My name is Robert Trell and I'm joined, as usual, by my cousin Mike. We're just a couple of science enthusiasts who love to learn and talk about the latest and greatest science and tech developments. I hope you're excited to join us today while we talk about the government funding of science. We're also fortunate to be joined today by Nicholas Maddox, who is the manniest man I've ever had the pleasure of rubbing beards with. Just a few of the topics we hope to cover this week are how the pure science research landscape has changed in the last 20 years, how these changes are affecting scientists, and what the outcomes of the drastic changes in government policy uh, do to the North American science community. Join us as we jump headlong into the future of science. It's going to be a very frustrating show. All right, guys, you can stop dancing now. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, Nick, it's it's great to have you here because I get to keep adding things into the into the notes that just make you crack up, and I'm the only one that gets to see it. <laughs> it's not true. Mike got to see it too. I, too. I, I know. <laughs> it, that was all for me. That was that was very very uh, intentional and and just for me. I'm very glad that you reacted that way. I'm, uh, but you are so the manniest man that I know. A manny, being, manny man? I'm being very honest. Uh, so, very this week, thank you. This week, this we're week. talking about publicly funded science research. And this is a topic that affects each of us in different ways, which uh, we'll, we'll talk about. But basically, it's a problem that doesn't get a lot of coverage necessarily by mainstream media, but there there has been a lot of talk uh, in other forms of media. There's a lot of videos on YouTube. There's a lot of reporting that has been done on how science funding, especially public science funding, has been cut a lot in the last 10 or so years. So why don't we start by talking about how we, how if we've felt the impacts personally as scientists or as engineers of the lack of or the cutting of public funds and and maybe if it hasn't affected us how we've seen its effects come through in our sort of day-to-day -day working lives. Uh, Nick, why don't we start with you? Uh, well, I mean, I've worked for the federal government a couple times in laboratory environments since uh, 2006, so like, oh god, when was that? I think it was 2009, 2010, I had my co-ops, and, like, it was, towards the end of 2010, it was getting, like, kind of dicey. Like, they were fine with me because I was a co-op student and effectively, like, half the price of a competent worker, or, like, a quarter of the price even. Yeah. So, like, that was fine, but after I left, like, the only people left in that lab six months later were pretty much grad students at the Institute for Chemical Process and, and Environmental Technology, anyway. So, and I mean, having a resume built upon working in federal laboratories and then hitting the job force has been kind of a rough transition. Right, well, it's but, such, uh, so much so that it stalled and now you're back at school, which is... Uh, that I am, yeah. Which is the common thing, unfortunately, for a lot of students coming out of university and even grad studies. Yeah, yeah. What about you, Mike? Um, well, I guess you could say that I'm on the, uh, the benefiting side of the fence when it comes to lack of public funding for science. Um, you know, being in, in the oil and gas industry in Alberta, we benefit a lot from being able to exploit the resources we have using... It's still technology and there's R&D that goes into it, but you wouldn't call it good for the environment. Um, you know, we try to do it in the most responsible way possible, but um, there's a lot of research being done on, on the effects that it has, and, uh, you know, I guess you could say the Harper government obviously wants to keep the, the industry going despite the outcries from, from public, not only in Canada but throughout the world, <clears throat> uh, you know, with uh, all talk about the oil sands and, and the damage that it does, so... Um, but I guess with as far as how I'm affected directly, um, the Alberta government is actually instituting a program that 
uh, rewards or uh, subsidizes research to find alternative and safer and more environmentally friendly ways to develop the, the oil and gas in Alberta. Um, so I guess on that end, it's actually, you know, you see some positive uh, advancements in that. Um, but from a climate change and just purely environmental impact standpoint, um, any research that's being done is probably a negative on my uh, job status, if you could call it that. Right. Um, so you said that was the Alberta government. Now, <clears throat> I've been gone for about eight years from Alberta, so I've not been keeping up at all with the politics of it. But which which political party is in power in Alberta right now? It's the Conservatives right now. Rob? I don't know. I'm just asking. Maybe it's I the don't... one that's been in power for the last, like, hundred years. <laughs> Maybe it's that one. But there, there are at least signs that winds might be changing, not necessarily in Alberta, yeah. but in Canada. Yeah, there's the Wild Rose would be the, I guess, the front runner to challenge that. When the right-wing government governing party wasn't quite right-wing enough, another, like, <laughs> deeper fringe right-wing uh, party... <laughs> popped up in Alberta. Yeah, I mean, if you go by square mile in Alberta, Wild Rose takes the cake by far, but yeah. fortunately, well, they... it's only the fringe, it's on, literally the fringe of, of uh, I guess, population that is Wild Rose. The, the city centers all across Alberta are still... Conservative. Extreme ...political parties, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, it, it, going into my sort of interaction with government. I just finished a job, uh, um, I guess it was almost a year and a half at NSERC, which is the National uh, Natural Science and Engineering Research Council of Canada. I got to see sort of firsthand how uh, the the science funding, because the, the, the research councils are in charge of funding basically all of Canada's research in, in natural science and engineering, in health science and, uh, and in social science and humanities. And the, I got to see firsthand the shift away from pure research to either fully funding industry research or funding collaborations between colleges and industry research. And while I, I wasn't really super aware of it at the time while I was working there, as I as I got further and further in, I started to see more and more of it, and realizing that this is actually hurting overall. This is hurting the scientific landscape of Canadian research, and yeah, it it really opened my eyes. And now I'm working at DND and l looking over technical reports. It's I'm I'm seeing some of the same thing. Like these are, for the most part, the reports I'm looking at are publicly funded defense research. That seems to be the one area, or one of several areas, that the Canadian government has sort of left alone. They are, the Conservatives, whether you like it or not, are trying to mimic the parts that they like of the American government. And the American government has a strong military complex, and so Canada, it's not really a surprise that Canada is leaving that more intact than some of the other peer research uh, goals. Now, if I may interrupt, I'm sorry, Rob. No, no, no. Should, I was, I was done, and, and you looked like you had something to say. Should we take a moment for like viewers that might not be familiar with the issue and de define like pure research versus yeah. applied research, and like where money for that can come from? You look like you have something to say. Do you? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I certainly do. <laughs> do you, so do you getting... want to explain it, or, or would you rather I take it? Uh, I'll, I'll take pure versus applied, if that's all right with you. So, like, Rob's original research during his uh, honors and master's theses would be good examples of curiosity-driven research, I think. Yes. Or pure or basic research. It's like when researchers find something they think they should be exploring or they're curious about, like, they kind of dive off the deep end and... From like the from an outside perspective or even like inside perspectives, really like there's no real payoff for it in the short term. Like they've just noticed this effect and they think it might be neat, so they're gonna look into it. 
and that was halogenated or the solid state NMR spectra of halogenated well species. Yeah, they they were organic compounds that had halogens on them and were the ones that I looked at had halogen compounds on them and they also were halogen salts. So they were chlorides, bromides, and iodides. Specifically, those so I think that's a perfect example to the lay viewer of a good example of like pure research because I'm sure like someone with a not science background just heard a lot of words there and they're pretty sure it's English. <laughs> People are familiar with chlorine and bromine and iodine. They've heard those words before. They know yeah. that they're salts. They that's they're they're at least components of salts. And yeah. they're in pools. Yeah. <laughs> or, in, or in table salt. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, and, like, by, in stark contrast to that, like, I deal with corrosion of, well, a lot of people in our lab, anyway, deal with corrosion as it pertains to nuclear waste disposal. So that's an applied research thing. Like, you can say, I deal with the corrosion on this one thing, and people are like, gotcha. Right. Okay. And or like, uh, and I mean, those are both like nuclear fuel storage is something that, and as well as Rob's research is something that like the private industry just isn't going to touch because there is way too much investment and no guaranteed payoff in the long run. So like that's just not going to happen. Whereas applied research, say to Mike's field in oil and gas, like. I am almost positive that Suncor, Husky, any other... Any Imperial, Shell. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. like, the big players are going to be researching that because they know that if they put in some R&D dollars, it's, it's going to pay dividends in the long run. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And just as a disclaimer, not a disclaimer, but a caveat, is that basic research or pure research doesn't necessarily mean that something practical or applicable is not going to come out of it, right? True. It also doesn't mean that anything practical will come out of it. It's like, you know, kind of a crapshoot. Yeah, it's like, well, if we, if we find something useful, then good. If not, then at least we're doing science and adding to the knowledge of Right. Society. So I heard a really, well, I, I'm paraphrasing an analogy I heard, uh, is that it's somewhat similar to shooting a shotgun. If, if a public... Uh, organization like like NSERC funds 20 different projects, it's akin to 20, for instance, pieces of buckshot at a target. If one hits the target and it's an animal, that animal's going to die if one or two hit. So if, if one or two projects out of the 20 that they fund are successful, then they will have been, it will have been a net positive. And so that's what they're going for. They're trying to fund the best research in the hopes that some of them will be successful. They're not trying, they're not, they know that they're not going to hit 100%, or it's very mm -hmm. unlikely. And I think I, I read a thing on, from uh, one of Canada's Norbel, Nobel laureates, I think it's pronounced Gerhard, but Hertzberg. Yeah. He had a story about, I can't remember the specifics, because I read it for a paper for Dr. Bryce's class, but uh, it was basically like, there was this physicist or something like that, and he had this weird, like, magnetic effect kind of sort of thing that he was investigating, and he was like, yeah, I would like to look into this. And so and Cirk was like, well, off you go, better you than me, sir. And he figured out this weird, cool little effect, and then all of a sudden they were like, oh, we could actually like make really, really accurate balances with this, so like scales with this. And all of a sudden there was only one guy in the entire world that truly understood this. Hmm. And, you know, you could just build an entire industry out of that. Like, all the national standards institutes from around the world, like governmental institutes that needed really, really accurate balances, wanted to buy one. And so you just, all of a sudden, an industry sprung out of some guy looking into a really weird phenomenon. Hmm. Right. Well, I mean, th there are literally innumerable examples of pure research paying off 40 or 50 years down the road with a, with a product that we that is literally integral to our society today. Mm -hmm. And it, it's been that way throughout history. Every time that there's been some sort of pure research 
step forward, if it if it has been successful pure research and something came out of it, it's paid off down the line. You you'd be hard pressed to find an example of some successful research that's that has happened in more than say 40 or 50 years ago that doesn't have some kind of payoff now. Um, one of the things that I wanted to mention before we get too far away from it is that in the diff going back to the difference between pure and applied research, uh, the pure research, the NMR side, the main facility that I did the vast majority of experiments, that more than half uh, of my experiments, the, the facility where I did them at is now closed. The, it's the, the high facility for solids. Yeah, they. I don't know. If, I don't know where the 900 is right now. I haven't looked into it. But that facility is one of the ones that got cut. It was on the. Uh, there's a documentary on the Fifth Estate that uh, we all watched at least part of it. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they had a list of all the facilities that have been closed. One of the 2,000 is that one. Mm. It was so, yeah. like. It was one <laughs> of the best anywhere. ones in North America. Yeah. I'm not saying that it's necessarily just not work. It's not running anymore. It might. They might have. They probably did move it somewhere because it's a multi-million-dollar investment. But yeah, that facility that was happening, that was uh, on the NRC campus, is now non-functioning, and all those people are have either moved to different labs or are somewhere else. And another important thing to note, I think, is that when you have this kind of research funded, not only are you developing research, you're gathering data, but you're helping to create a knowledge-based economy, you're creating very skilled and very knowledgeable workers who can then apply those skills and knowledge to a variety of different tasks and just make do public science for the public good in the future. But like, yeah. like when that happens, you lose a piece of equipment and then everyone's like, oh, well, I guess I'm leaving now. Yeah, exactly, and you end up getting people, there, there was talk of people going to the UK to do research, um, people going to the states, even people going anywhere. The, the research is being done. This is the, people think. I, I think people think of scientists as sort of these. They're wearing. They're in lab coats and they're. Uh, I I don't really know what the public perception of scientists is, but it's people don't see them for what they actually are, which is people who dedicate their life to something that they have a passion for one particular niche area of research and they dedicate their life to it and when when their funding gets cut they they want to keep doing that thing it, it's not like they can just go and become accountants or become bus drivers they want to keep doing that so they're gonna leave and no longer help the Canadian economy they're gonna be helping wherever they are yeah. why don't we talk a bit about how the government actually chooses what to fund and what to cut and just based on what we've seen recently, like what kind of decisions are being made on that end? Yeah, that's uh, that's a good example. I don't. Know, did you want to talk about it, or should I? Or like, I don't know, like if if you had specific examples, we can kind of talk about it. Because I, I saw that bit in the the yeah. film, that little video on the Fifth Estate. Um, you know, kind of how there's there's elements of uh, preferential treatment for um, research that might benefit the economy or the ideals that each individual government wants to kind of project onto the rest of the world and onto the country. Um, so maybe, yeah, I don't know what your thoughts are on that. And kind right, of, well, I mean, if, if, that's not, if that's not the ideal way to decide, what would you recommend as far as where to put the money? Right. So be, seeing as I worked there for 18 months, I have a pretty good idea of the process. So basically what they do is they, they set up a, a grant, they get money from the government every year that gives, that gives them the ability to fund a certain number of projects. And so they'll put out a call to have people apply for this grant, and they'll generally, I'll, I'll say they get 100 applications. Uh, and these grants are set up such that they have specific things they're looking for. Either they're looking for specific scientific fields, like pharmaceuticals, or like forestry, the environment, any sort of thing. But what the, the changes the government has put in place make the objectives of the grants more either business-oriented, industry-oriented. Uh, they, they aim them, at least some of them, the majority of them, away from pure research or from just academic research at a university, like has traditionally been the case for since the inception of NSERC. And so what they do is they take these 100 applications 
they comb through and make sure that everything is that is okay with the applications, and then they get they go through what's called peer review. So they grab a bunch of scientists or a bunch of people working in the fields that are that are um, being discussed or being uh, talked about in the projects, and they get them to to look through and find out which ones are the best. But they're the best in terms of what the government has already framed that they're looking for. So if you aim away from pure research, it doesn't matter if you have scientists that are passionate about uh, about their research if it's not in a way that the government wants to go. And so no matter what you want to do, the, the peer review group, the committees that select the applications, are going to slant towards what the government wants. And if they don't do that, then there's a, there's a once the selection committee makes their choices, it's sent to a, a steering committee, which is basically the heads of the research councils, which are directly informed by the government. And if they, if they saw that they weren't aiming the applications towards where the government wanted, they would just deny and say, steering committee or um, selection committee, go back and pick the ones that. So it it really does come down to the fact that everything, every part of the peer review process is top down. So if the government mandates yeah. research in certain areas, that's what they're going to get. They're not going to fund research away from their own priorities. So in that sense, it's broken, but it's not the actual peer review process. The peer review process is actually really good if it's informed mm -hmm. by good government policy, which is which is the main problem. The fact that, uh, for instance, in the in that uh, story, they were talking about the Museum of Civilization, which used to do fundamental research and w would send out teams and have now they've now partnered with the it was the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers, which is a government lobby that pays to either allow reg or allow oil and gas research or loosen regulation on oil and gas development in mostly in Alberta. So there's a in general there's a government slant away from pure research and towards industry-led research or industry-driven research, and it's just it's. It's not great for our economy because the same thing that is happening in the States is happening in Canada where it's now people with deep pockets deciding where research money is going. So the oil, if oil companies have deep pockets, they're the ones deciding what needs to be researched next, and they're going to be researching things that make them the most money. But nobody is going to be researching sort of the either the economic uh, downsides or the environmental effects or the health effects or anything like that. Those and facilities are being shut down. Like, I mean, further, you're not, you don't have those potentially very valuable pieces of research in the pipeline towards economic development. Like, that's just, you've got a lull, and you're not going to reap as many of the benefits down the line as you, as you could be. Right. I think. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, did that, did that answer, Mike, what you were looking to find out, or is... Yeah, I think it's, it's kind of... It's, it's more a matter of where's the money coming from and where's it going, and, and who who is responsible for... Like, who are you answering to when you're putting that money into those different areas? Like, you know, you could have, like, some sort of, like, plebiscite where the public votes on what types of research their tax money should fund, but it sounds like a lot of the money isn't even tax money to begin with if it's privately subsidize or invested research and at that point it's kind of like all bets are off and it's it's its own kind of thing at that point you're just companies paying for R&D that the government is kind of carrying out under their their flag um, so it, it kind of goes back to like well what would be an alternative alternative kind of setup like say like you know Google has their 80-20 setup for 20% of time spent can be on whatever you want so it should be the same thing with, with tax money for research, where 20% on pure or basic research and 80% on applied, so that regardless of what you're trying to filter through, at least 20% uh, set aside for those more pure pure type endeavors. That that would be one, one way of doing it as far as budgeting a specific percentage of that tax money. But when there's private companies that are contributing to those those funds, and I don't know what else you can do but to answer to those companies, because otherwise the money's not going to be there at all, right? So, right. Well, I so, mean, 
Sorry, who's Go who's going on that one? Because, um, I mean, at NRC, when I was there, like, the National Research Council is meant to be an agent of public science for, like, public good, and they used to, like, publish everything they did. But when I left, we actually had, like, a meeting with one of the government heads, like, the appointee who was dealing with us. And... Like, his message to us was, we want people to be more like you, and what we were doing a lot of was we would accept a lot of industrial contracts to do industrial research, and then that would fund us and keep our lights on, but we weren't actually doing anything that we could publish, really. Like, everything was under gag order, or you could only talk about it, or you could only report the findings back to the funding agency. So, like you were getting all this good research done, but it wasn't going out into the public domain. So you were getting public tax dollars, like, going in and building these, you know, institutes, and then they were just kind of, like, working for whatever company wanted to pay them. And they weren't even necessarily Canadian companies. It would just be, like, I don't know, a lot of auto manufacturers just, like, internationally coming in and using the facilities... Right. which doesn't really give the economic benefit back to Canada. It's just it keeps the doors open and the lights on. Mm-hmm. Sure. So on the note of what what could be improved about the process, uh, you mentioned that government or people, like you mentioned a process wherein maybe people could vote for the, the pro- things that they think are priorities for the government. Um, the issue with that is that a lot of people consider that the government should be should have the the power to like we elect people to government so that they can make decisions on our behalf um the problem comes up when people become so uninformed that they aren't really aware of what the government is actually doing so a lot of people don't actually realize that this is happening and so they they can't like obviously most uh, of the general population doesn't, they don't have one ear to whatever's coming out of scientific journals, uh, what what Canadian research is coming out. So all that you get is government officials who might know something about science and technology, but they might not. And so what they, where they're getting their, the government officials are getting their information from is increasingly becoming lobbyists, which is people with deep pockets saying, oh, well, you should do this because, like, you should fund this project because it's really good and here's $100,000, so maybe you should do it and I'll give you more. <laughs> uh, it's the same thing, and I've noticed this more and more as I grow older, and it kind of makes me sad. In the pharmaceutical industry, you get pharmaceutical reps are sent out to doctor's offices to talk about the drugs that they're trying to sell. Whether or not they're dangerous kind of gets underplayed and they talk about all the positives of it. And so you get doctors with a message in their head that, yeah, like prescribe Viagra for ED, that's great. It works really well and and they don't know any side effects. So they talk about uh, doctors will go back to their patients and tell them to take these drugs and you trust your doctor. Like if a doctor tells you something about a drug, you believe them. But what their their source of information isn't isn't medical research itself. It's from a pharmaceutical rep. No no doctor has time to sit there reading medical journals, unless they are really interested in that topic. And that's where specialized doctors are a little bit better. But general practitioners don't have time to learn about every possible malady or every possible drug, especially with the, the pace of change, the rate of change of all these things. Uh, and so you'll you'll still see doctors prescribing Tylenol or extra extra strength Tylenol for pain, headaches, that kind of thing, when the Food and Drug Administration has come out and said like extra strength Tylenol is terrible for you. It's like long term going to ruin your liver. Mm-hmm. There are alternatives that don't do that. You shouldn't take Tylenol, especially extra strength extra strength Tylenol. And so that's the same kind of thing you're getting into with politicians: is that they're getting their information from biased sources. So even though we've we've selected these people to represent our opinions, they're they're not they're not thinking about our opinions. They're thinking about where they're getting the money from, which is industry, which is mm-hmm. from lobbyists. 
And I think, if I may jump onto that again, like, there was a video called Phil's Rant on funding from 60 Symbols, which is a Brady Heron Heron, channel. Great guy. Um, But one of Phil's point, like, Phil made a point on that matter, and he said that, like, they were saying, you know, well, it's public tax dollars, why shouldn't the public have a say on what you're spending money on? And Phil's point was more or less, well, the public doesn't necessarily know where the field is going or what's interesting to the field or, like, what part of the field is dead and buried and, like, everyone's moving away from because it's probably not going to work. So the people that probably should be making those decisions are the scientists who actually dedicate their lives to this stuff. And so you probably want them to be making independent decisions on the matter rather than having it be heavily influenced by, you know, whatever direction the wind's blowing that day. Yeah, because that that is how a lot of climate change policy is made. It's whatever way the wind's blowing. If it's cold that day, they're going to... Like, <laughs> humans are really, really bad at long-term forecasting. We're really notably terrible at it. Unless you have data sitting there next to you, you're not going to be able to intuit forecasts based on your past experience. You need hard data to do it. Yeah, it's... Uh, that especially hits home because what you start to see in in the U.S. especially, I've noticed it, but I'm sure it happens in Canada as well, is that the people that get elected start to become, like the lobbyists start to get elected. People who have these biases are in power. So it becomes sort of this vicious circle of people paying politicians to promote whatever they're trying to, whatever soapbox they have, to them actually getting elected themselves and being in control of of what's going on. So you have people uh, in the states, you have people who are uh, either in the Senate or in Congress who are literally biased towards whatever they're they're talking about. But so they're if they're trying to decide science policy, uh, you're not. I'm not, I'm not explaining this well, but if you're trying to, if you're dictating science policy as a as a politician, and you have worked in an oil and gas industry for 30 years, you're going to think that they should keep doing that. You're going to think that, well, why why should we stop? Um, we've been doing this oil and gas research, and it's making us tons of money. Of course, we should keep funding it. Of course, we should fund it more. Um, and so. Closing the loop on that, um, what it comes down to, I, I, I lost my train of thought there when I was trying to close the loop. Well, you looked great while doing it, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> I, which is, it's really, I'm going to, does anyone have something to to maybe help me out? Because I'm trying to, I'm gonna, I want to come back to it. Like you need to break the vicious cycle of lobbyists influencing policy and just having, like, an independent uh, panel for, right, you know, like a maybe international panel of yeah. climate scientists or something. I don't know. <laughs> like, an, inter- an intergovernmental panel on climate change or something like that? <laughs> if only we had something like an IPCC. Right, like some something that everyone could look to to trust for... <laughs> for this research as opposed to... Rob, you are one of those people we call dreamers. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, it's completely gone, but it was, yeah. it was good, and, and I'll come back to it if I can remember what I wanted to say. If I may, uh, I, a, a funding model that I would love to see, um, it would be based on like a graph I saw once at the National Research Council. But they had plotted, like, research investment uh, per research, what was it? It was, like, you know, amount of money invested on the y-axis and number of researchers on the, no, researchers investment (laughs) per researcher. Yeah. Oh, God, what was it? (laughs) No, okay, I got it, I got it. (laughs) Y-axis. Which is the dependent variable. <laughs> but, like, 
tax spinoffs, uh, you know, patent revenue, stuff like that. And the x-axis was investment per researcher. Got it. Okay. <laughs> and was it a straight line? Appre- can we take a moment and appreciate how terrible that was? <laughs> uh, it was not a straight line, Rob. It was an exponential increase. So towards the bottom, it was a straight line. Like, investment per researcher would like pay off in a linear fashion. But once you had like higher and higher investments per researcher, the curve started doing this, like just shooting skyward. So like once you surpass a certain amount of funding per researcher, you really start, you know, with the buckshot analogy, you start the more of those buckshot shotgun shells. No, but I think it's like the little pellets that come out of the shell. Yeah. Anyway, the more of those you throw out there, the more likely you you are to hit something and make it big. So I would love to see, like, just the government saying one year, okay, like, this is a lump sum we're investing in federally funded R&D. That's going to go to NSERC and the National Research Council in general, and that is theirs forever. But, like, closing it off and saying that all the tax, like, if you could possibly manage it, say, like, the tax revenue from that, like, at least a certain portion is going to go back into the NRC, mm-hmm. and any patent revenue that they get goes back to the NRC. And so, you know, trying to find that skyward part of the curve, yeah. say, like, with increased payoff, you're going to get more and more money going back into that closed-off uh, bubble of funding. Right. If, 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 I may, could... if I may play devil's advocate, uh, right. you can also yeah. increase revenue or investment per researcher by decreasing the number of researchers. <laughs> that seems like the opposite <laughs> way to go about it. Just saying, but... Uh, yeah, have you could either... In a room, swearing <laughs> in money. <laughs> you could either increase revenue or decrease costs, Nick. Why not just decrease the cost? <laughs> because... There's a critical mass, I think. It's yeah, the no, easiest way I know. to say it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah well, there's, there's my... a threshold that you need to pass as far as funding goes until you can actually use it to its full potential as far as generating revenue, probably. Yeah. Well, my, my rebuttal there would be, like, I mean, look at Rob and I. Rob and I have both been the beneficiaries of specifically the Government of Canada, like Government of Canada facilities. Mm-hmm. And I would argue that in the eyes of the greater economy, we are more valuable resources for that experience. So the more people you have going through this system, uh the more potential upside and the more potential payoff for the knowledge-based economy that you have. Yeah. And that's why you shouldn't just, like, cut the number of researchers. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. Woo! <laughs> so one of the interesting things, at least from my perspective, that that situation you described has happened a couple times. Actually? In the last 100 years. Not, not officially, like, not... Not in like a, we're doing this, here it is, we're closing this box. But NASA got a massive, massive amount of funding from the U.S. government in the 60s to put a man on the moon. And within 10 years, they did it. At that point, all we had was like, I don't even know if the 747 had been invented or had been developed by that point. But they managed to go from literally nobody had ever been in space to someone walking on the moon and then coming back. Well, wait. I think if we're being really technical about this, I think someone had been in space by the time NASA, or they, the United States had decided to fund Fair NASA. Enough. Fair enough. Yeah, going a bit further back than maybe the first person in space, sure. But okay. um, another example I can think of that isn't necessarily for the greater good, but it's, it's certainly pushed research forward is the Manhattan Project and the entire sort of focus on the atomic research. Uh, within a very short time span, they, we went from 
barely understanding, not even knowing that there were atoms, to splitting them apart and getting these massive, massive amounts of energy. Uh, yeah, it's mm -hmm. it's crazy. When you do do that, you can hit this critical mass, and just research goes incredibly fast. And that's yeah. what we what has happened really with the internet and with te like computer technology in general. Yeah. The fact that Moore's law is a thing, where we're getting double the processing speed of computers every 18 months, and that it it went that way for like 40 or 50 years, is just unbelievable to me. That it happened that quickly like it shouldn't I, if you're being reasonable it shouldn't have happened that quickly yeah but with with all those examples you you see that there is an, an almost immediate payoff with all of those endeavors like with the space race it was like okay well we don't want russia to beat us so we're going to I was going to say I'm pretty sure that was influenced heavily yeah. by those dirty filthy yeah. ruskies right. are getting into space and yeah, and then, you know, you have, what was the other, oh, the Manhattan Project, where it's like, well, we need to, like, defend ourselves and bomb the crap out of the world. Yeah. And then you have the technological side of things, which is, in a sense, self-propelling just with people wanting faster things naturally, but also from an economic payoff standpoint that it paid off to develop and invest that money in because the rewards would be a lot greater. But when you look at climate change, it's, like, the exact opposite. It's, like, in increasingly inconvenient to reduce carbon emissions and there's no economic benefit for that compared to actually continuing to use carbon heavy fuels so it's like it's it'll it'll take the kind of thing where well if the world's going to end in 10 years if we don't immediately cut emissions that's what it's going to take to have that right. same kind of determined effort i think that depends on how you define economic uh like an economic impetus, like depending on what you're talking about, like <clears throat> there's no like tax revenue or like not there's no like economic boom that you're gonna see probably by moving away from oil because you will be lessening the energy returned on the energy invested. Read my blog, um, but if you look at the potential economic costs of climate change, like especially when you're talking about increased severe weather patterns or like, you know, droughts, floods, storms, things like that, like the they have a drain on the economy because they just damage everything and then you have to pay to replace it. So that's not so much in the case of NASA, I mean it was completely unforeseen the benefits of the space or the moon landing attempts, but like, you know, all of a sudden all our electric electronics got smaller, they got faster, and now we have smartphones. But uh, in the case of like, you know, climate change, that's where I was going with that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, in the case of climate change, you're trying to avoid disaster rather than seek riches. Need something, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah. you're trying, I mean, in terms of beating the Russians, you are trying to avoid disasters. You're trying to avoid the states. That's true. You are trying to avoid the dirty, filthy Ruskies getting right. ahead of us in rocket technology. You don't have to have a massive sort of paradigm-shifting change for the worse like staring you right in the face in order to put funding into science, it just helps. Like, basically, the the world at both those points was like, oh no, what are we going to do? And scientists were like, I have an idea. <laughs> and then we put money into it and it worked. Like, you... Talking about, pos like, not making money, and I, it's really, honestly, too bad that the world is all about making money because climate change research, like we stopped using chlorofluorocarbons because it was destroying the ozone. Um, we are developing all kinds of wind and solar and hydroelectric technology because we know that oil and gas is going to run out. Like, those are economic benefits. If we can become a society that doesn't have to rely on fossil fuels and we can get free energy from the sun, that's going to be cost-effective. It's just longer term, so it's not as easy to see the, the yeah. early benefits. Yeah. yeah, it's like, you know, we've got time for that, like, yeah. kind well, of thing. They've been saying, I, I read today that 
um, they pin a 35-year drought in the southwestern United States coming in the next 50 years or so at about 90% right now. And they're saying that a multi-decade, like 50-year-plus drought could be about, it was about 50% likely based on the based on models that have taken into account the last whatever 50 to 100 years of climate data mm-hmm. like that's that's a huge thing that will affect millions if not hundreds of millions of people and it's going to be happening in the ne- next 20 years or so like it's starting to become a focus because it has to be because we're getting to the point that this could be worse than a world war what we're doing to the planet so they're they're putting money into it basically because we're at that level now that these things are getting so bad that it's going to affect people in the very near future. Um, sorry to be such a downer, but that's uh, no, I'm all sad. <laughs> World's so, gonna end. <laughs> I wanted. I want to talk about one of the great things about science that I don't think when people picture scientists they don't think about this. But the beautiful thing about science and scientific research in general, um, if you're not a biased, sort of mindless political zealot, <laughs> no, seriously, seriously, there are, there are some people who will, be, will do quote-unquote science and they'll just focus on one project and whether, regardless of whether it fails or succeeds, they'll keep going down that road, pouring more and more money into it no matter what is going to happen. But science as, a, as an actual topic has the scientific method along with it that, that uh, dictates basically what you do next when, some, when an experiment is over. Um, so the great thing about actual good science in research facilities is that it has error correction built into it. So if something bad happens or if research doesn't go the way you want, it also will give you hints as to where you can go next to get research that's successful. So if you if you find research that says, for instance, um, in the next we we could have a 35 year drought in the states in the next 50 years, uh, it'll give you it'll at least point in directions of ways that you could stop that or slow it down or reverse it. It'll tell you what the problem is and what could happen, but it will also give you ways to prevent it or to at least control it better. And so I think you could you could apply that logic to any scientific field that has lost funding and say, well, this could have like, if, if I'm using a NASA example, nobody 50 years ago could have seen the like satellites in general, but GPS satellites specifically, nobody could have seen GPS coming. Or if they did, they were science fiction writers. But now it's something that is literally integral to millions of people's lives every single day. Mm-hmm. And it came directly from funding for NASA from the government. Um, it, nobody said, hey, I wonder, like I'm, I'm picturing these, what if we sent little things up into space that could communicate with Earth and would be able to tell people exactly where they were on Earth within a few feet and it would be really cheap and, and manageable, and all we need to do is figure out exactly how this new special relativity that we've discovered works, and then we'll be golden. Like, that's not how GPS was developed. It was developed over years. People tried something, and, and they took a little bite out of it, and then failed, and then they went in a slightly different direction, and eventually we got GPS. It wasn't like... It wasn't a movie where, through a series of hilarious missteps and whatever GPS was magically in space. Like that's not how science works. Science is a very deliberate procedural way of doing things that inevitably leads to progress. It might not necessarily be what you set out to do, but it's, it, it progresses naturally through its own sort of endless cycle of, of positive feedback. I, uh, we can just end it right there if you want. I, don't <laughs> I still have, we could, we could honestly make this an hour and a half, two hour, three hour talk if we wanted to. Do you want to um, like cut it off here and then take like a 10 minute recess and make part two? 
<laughs> well, I, I don't need to recess. I don't know if there's. I don't know that there's a lot more. We might have to come back to this. Um, is there anything else you guys absolutely wanted to mention, or should we? Can I do a last one or two things and then call it done for now? I think. Well, what you've just described there, I'd like to briefly just point out that that's like an ideal uh, trajectory for science to follow. Like, there was massive investment from a federal source, like a governmental source, in order to fund the space program. And now we've gotten to the point where private industry has the technological capability to do a lot of those things. But, I mean, because they won't invest nearly as much for as long a time as governments will, they can invest just a little and come up with these, you know, satellite-based imagery things or, you know, even, what is it, SpaceX? Yep. The company that will now take you to space? Like, you know, 50 years ago, that was something that only a government could do with mm-hmm. very, very deliberate R&D efforts, and now it's something that just everyone can do. Yeah. So... Like, that's an excellent example of a trickle-down where, you know, massive investment from a federal source decades later benefit everybody, especially your own economy, because when you develop these technologies yourself, all of a sudden you have a brand-new product, and you're the only one that's technologically capable of doing it. Right. So we should fund more science more basic and pure science so that uh, we have those economic benefits down the line. Right, because we can never see what the next NASA is going to be. We never yeah. see what the next huge breakthrough is going to be. We can just address it when it happens, but it only happens through... It really does. I mean, I'm saying this, I'm biased too, but it really does, for the 99% of cases, only happen when you have publicly funded science that isn't going towards some particular um, small incremental project from uh, from industry because industry isn't going to make big bets like that or at yeah. least most they'll make small and medium bets like that but they're not going to make a huge bet on something yeah like that's not going to pay off. that's not going to pay off like they are beholden to shareholders they they're strictly speaking not allowed to do that yeah, yeah. and Oh, as a fun note, on like 20% time in Google, I don't know if, well, Mike probably won't know this story, but do you remember uh, our prof, Jay Holmes? Yes. Jay Holmes I and Barry McGee. I hope Mike doesn't remember this story. That'd be really weird. <laughs> yeah, no, but uh, our prof, John Holmes, which was a big surprise when I first Googled that name. Um <laughs> Yeah, he had his Friday afternoon thinks experiments. I just remembered that, like, with Google's 20% yeah. time. It's like, yeah, Friday afternoon, that's between 10, 10 and 20% of a work week. He would just, like, listen to students, and be they would be like, hey, I want to try this weird thing. And he'd be like, it sounds like a good opportunity for a Friday afternoon experiment. And, you know, a lot of them wouldn't work because they were just <laughs> way up. Way off. Shots, like, yeah. Yeah, but a couple of them would work out, and you could usually get a paper out of that or mm. a publication or something. Yeah, and then five years later, uh, it will be tragically shut down by Google, and now we have to all use Feedly or Dig. Or <laughs> <laughs> yeah, can we talk about Reader? Yeah. <laughs> There's been uh, nothing, nothing that has stepped in and helped that. Nothing, at least not for me. Void for me. Yeah. Mike uses Feedly. I use, like, Twitter and Google+, Plus, but it's not the same. Oh, it's not awful. The same. Dig isn't it's the same. It's awful. No. <laughs> so <sighs> I want to wrap up by just going through a few different... This is specifically to, for the states, but just a few of the things that we have today because of publicly funded research at its most basic level. So Department of Energy in the States was founded in 1943. Uh, So this is right around the end of the Second World War. Again, one of the main incentives is is war and conflict, unfortunately. 
So optical digital recording technology came out of the DOE, specifically public funded, uh, communication satellites, advanced batteries, water, water purification techniques that make drinking water safe for millions of people now, uh, supercomputers, passenger jets that are more resilient, cancer therapies, and apparently the confirmation that it was an asteroid that killed the dinosaurs uh, came from DOE investments. Uh, the National Science Foundation, which was founded in 1950, uh, apparently the first year of operation, it only got $3.5 million in 1952, which is the equivalent of $29 million today. Um, we got Google, we got, which is, I mean, if you if you talk about investing $29 million, we now, through that original investment, have Google, which is a $250 billion company, um, which apparently they say will pay all the program's costs reaching back to inception, which is the amount of money Google's made. Um, so nearly every major industry, advanced electronics, computing, digital communications, environmental research, resource management, lasers, clean energy, nanotechnology, biotechnology, and higher education, all got help. Like, one of the things that is never mentioned in, if I'm going back to specifically the example of um, internet service providers and telephone carriers, they're talking about how they need all of this uh like, they're not making enough money, so they need to charge more. And they're saying, like, we built this business. We deserve to make a bigger profit, so here's what we're going to do. But they never, ever mention, and they will specifically downplay the fact that a lot of the, their investment into building cell towers comes from public subsidies or, or public funds themselves. Like, when these companies are first starting out, they get grants um, from, like, they get public grants, government grants, to build out towers to get this cellular communication technology to everyone. And then all of a sudden, they once they've built them, they turn around and go, oh, well, we built these, so we get to get all the money from them, and you can't tax us, you can't, like... Well, they did go to a lot of effort applying for those grants, I'm sure. <laughs> a lot of paperwork. <laughs> so they get these millions or billions of dollars of infrastructure investment, and then they just forget about it and turn around and say, oh, well, like... You helped pay for this, but now forget about you. We're in it for us, and that's it. Uh, DARPA, which is the Defense, Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, was founded in 1958 uh, in response to the launch of Sputnik by the, the Soviets. Filthy Ruskies. <laughs> so stealth fighter jets, uh, the Internet was started as a, as a DARPA project. Um, Right now, they describe themselves as 100 geniuses connected by a travel agent. <laughs> uh, so they're working on things like robotics, uh, exoskeletons for humans in, in high-stress situations. Uh, yeah, like robots are pushing scientific boundaries, like performing medical operations. Uh, Siri is, was originally a, a DARPA project that Nuance was working on. Uh, GPS, the Internet, yeah. So these, these things are all public like they got their start from public funding. The Apollo space program we talked about a lot. Uh, it was only eight years that the actual Apollo space program was in, but just there's so much that's come from it. Uh, and the last one that I'm going to mention is the Human Genome Project, which started apparently it started in 1988, which seems early, but I guess I wasn't really paying attention when I was zero. Um, <laughs> so basically. All of the, it's like since the Human Genome Project started, there's a, just this massive biotechnology industry in the States and, well, in the entire world, uh, preventing disease, treating disease, and figuring out causes of disease. And it all came from this $3.6 billion investment, which is, they, they say it's 0.005% of the GDP over 15 years. And we have basically the entire biotech industry because of that that relatively small investment, if we could, if we just keep doing that, like it's, we will see a stagnation in advancements if we don't, like, rather than being coming through leaps and bounds like we have been, if we cut federal funding for science, it's just going to trickle. We're not going to see any big, huge leaps. 
And, Man, can uh, you imagine if, like, the National Science Foundation had kept all the tax revenue from Google? Like, how incredible it would be now? <laughs> they should they should ask about that. No, and it's uh, actually one of the other one of the last things that I was reading about is how Eric Schmidt, who's the CEO or former CEO of Google, I forget now. Um, people like he and Bill Gates are putting so much of the money they've made from technology back into philanthropy and back into funding things like uh, medical research and environmental research. Like it's they are the like the tech pioneers are the ones that are finally sort of seeing how the public funds help them and are putting it, investing it back into science. And so that's kind of the best case scenario is you're not having industry, you, they, they are from industry, but they're not, they're helping in ways that don't directly help them back. Like if, if Eric Schmidt puts money into a solar power project, he's not going to see money back on that. He doesn't have, he's not working for a solar power company, he's working for Google. If he does see benefits, it's just going to be sort of satellite benefits. He's not directly benefiting from from putting this money that he's investing, which is yeah. I mean, once you get to the point where you're that rich, why not? Like that's what I would do. That's what I that's what I want to do right now. I just don't. Once have you're getting to like billionaire status, it's like I don't know. Maybe <laughs> I'll start an advanced technology network. Yeah, why not? <laughs> just like I would be so thrilled. Just like have a multi or a multi-million dollar facility, like, doing advanced research and development, just wandering, wandering around and be like, that's really cool. Yep. <laughs> yep. yep. <laughs> what are you guys doing? Oh, we're, like, going to bounce signals off the moon and get free power somehow. <laughs> Me? <laughs> yep. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's, yeah. Oh. So I guess I guess that's it for now. We might have we probably will have to come back to this in maybe not the exact same way, but in a similar way, uh, which I'm looking forward to. Is there anything else you guys wanted to mention before we go? We Any, should do an episode uh, we'll, on lobbying and science. Yeah, we'll put uh, like there. I have a billion links. We'll put them all in the in the description on the podcast, so you guys can go check it out. But Just keep having these future. Meta science chats. Yeah, <laughs> well, it is. It absolutely is relevant to science. There's no way you could say that it's not. Um. So yeah, we'll we'll keep doing it. Yeah. We'll Sweet. invest our time into at least talking about it, even though we can't necessarily affect change directly. We'll at least try <laughs> in whatever way we can. It's true. So on that note, we'll wrap it up. We'll uh, just mention before. Be sure to. Uh, Follow us, subscribe on YouTube if you enjoy this. Subscribe to the podcast if you don't like YouTube or you want to listen to something on the go. We actually have quite a few. Like, the science one tends to be more popular than the the tech one, but we have quite a few people subscribing. We're at, I think we're at 50 for the science one. Oh, nice. Wow. Hello, subscribers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, I guess we'll wrap it up for this week. And we have coming up, next week we're talking about gadgets because September is the month of every single company releasing gadgets. It'll be one or two days before the announcement of the next iPhone and whatever is coming. So we'll, we'll figure out or we'll try to, to wean out what's going to happen. We'll just generally fanboy out over gadgets. Uh, and then the following week we are talking about food science and we have a special guest coming on who is working in food science to talk about uh, all kinds of crazy things with food. Like, there's so much science that goes into food these days and processing food and and nutrients and all that stuff. So we'll we'll have a fun talk about that. Okay. Uh, just, if I may briefly, could we do maybe an episode in the future on why Future Chat subscribers are more intelligent and attractive than their peers? Because I, I feel like that's an easily yeah. provable, uh, easily provable hypothesis there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 If any of our subscribers or viewers want to weigh in, yeah. uh, we'll definitely talk about it in a future episode. I think it's fairly awesome. axiomatic by this point. Alright. You guys know the drill. Mute it up and we'll, we'll fade out. Oh, man.
You're just you're muzzling me like Harper muzzles our scientists, Rob. I'm not muzzling anybody. Suppression. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah. So here we go. I'm gonna try this. I've never done the outro. Thanks for tuning in, and uh, I really hope you enjoyed the show. We'll see you all next week on future Tech Chat. Bye, guys. <laughs>